in between episode one. Happy Thanksgiving and recapping the NYEC Digital Health Conference 2014. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Thanksgiving week seemed like the perfect time for an in-between episode. Plus, in happy coincidence, last week was the NYEC Digital Health Conference 2014. In case you don't know, the NYEC is the New York eHealth Collaborative, and they are I don't know, responsible for or advocates of the Statewide Health Information Network of New York, acronym SHINE, and that is New York's HIE. And what I've also seen them do is really support the utilization of the health information that is in the SHINE via promoting APIs and apps which leverage the the shiny information. So they have a conference every year. I came up with five main themes or main takeaways that I had. I'm sure you could talk to pretty much any participant and they'd probably come up with their own five that are relevant to, to them, but these are mine. The first one is ACA's payment reform means that the business model of healthcare needs to adapt. I don't think that anybody who's been in this industry for longer than about 10 minutes would argue that reimbursement drives what goes on in the healthcare industry. If you want something to happen, you've got to change reimbursement to drive that change. I was at an ad board. This is probably a couple of years ago now, but we were, we were talking about how to motivate physicians. And we asked one particular physician, what we would need to do in order to to motivate him to to do something or other. And after sort of a dramatic pause, he said, if you pay me, I'll do it. So, I mean, everybody knows the best way to change provider behavior is to change the way they're paid. We've had a number of guests actually on the Relentless Health Value podcast, which have reiterated the same exact point. Stan Burkoff from, from Sense Health said this. Kent Dix said this. Robert Herzog from, from eCaring said this. Basically, every successful entrepreneur we've had on the program has said that if it's not reimbursed, it doesn't happen. And Zeke Emanuel, who was the keynote speaker, reiterated this point and said, if we really want the digital medicine of the future, we're going to have to push hard on payment reform. So it all kind of follows through. He also said that there's no business model now for high-quality, low-cost care, which is interesting and a little depressing that what we're going to need to do is really, it, this is not only, the ACA doesn't just drive technology change and reimbursement change, but what it needs to transform in order for this to work is actually the business models of healthcare. And Eric Topol commented, and maybe this is his idea of how to start thinking about this or a first step, he said that commodity care needs to move out of hospitals, that hospitals should be really specialized centers of excellence. And he also said that what we need to do, what hospitals need to do is move to capitation, bundled payments, and two-sided risk. So maybe that was Eric Topol's idea of how to create a new business model for healthcare. Jacob Ryder commented 
that sharing risk, this two-sided risk, also provides an incentive to share health information. Therefore, these new emerging business models will promote interoperability. And we all know that interoperability is what it's going to take in order to really maximize the ability of digital health to have the impact that it needs to have to make it really functional. So it kind of all could be full circle. The second main takeaway that I had was that technology enables personalized medicine at scale. And personalized medicine at scale is a must-have for successful population health. And I came up with three categories, subcategories, of personalized medicine. One is personalized medicine for treatment decisions. For example, Eric Topol spent some time talking about how there's a lot of delay and just slack in the system because, for example, why isn't every hospital gene sequ sequencing suspected infections instead of waiting three days for culture results? I mean, how much morbidity and mortality does that introduce into the system as well as extra cost? So one category of personalized medicine is this personalized medicine for treatment decisions. Secondly, we could have personalized medicine of the pill. Close to 55% of drugs prescribed are ineffective for the patients they are prescribed for. And that was per a slide that was shown by GNS Healthcare. That's crazy, especially as we're talking with these high cost specialty drugs. They should be given to the right people. It doesn't serve anyone's purpose, including the pharmaceutical company's purpose. I mean, if pharma is trying to prove outcomes and they are trying to prove, which they must, via you know real world evidence that their drugs are more effective than lower cost competitors in the comparative effectiveness research or trials or population health intervention studies, which are being conducted by providers or patients or even pharma themselves, if people are being included in those studies for whom the drug is not going to work for, then the study is not going to turn out well if it includes those individuals. So basically, pharma is diminishing their potential outcomes by including people who shouldn't be in the intervention in the intervention. So if we think long term here, it doesn't serve anyone's purpose to allow the wrong patients to take a product. And most of all, the patient. I mean, we're not serving our, our patients, which is completely obvious. There was another slide that Eric Topol popped up really fast, but I, I saw in the middle that there was, and I could be wrong, but there was a gene sequen sequencing opportunity also because simvastatin will cause rhabdo in certain patients that have a certain gene. So, you know, why are we giving those patients simvastatin? Once again, we could be creating our own trouble there. The third type of personalized medicine, which is really necessary for really effective population health management, is personalized patient engagement. So, you know, personalized medicine beyond the pill. There was a, a really interesting speaker named Sky Christensen, Christofferson, sorry, who's an Olympic cyclist and also a coach. And, and he demonstrated that by using data, he could break world records and win Olympics while competing, probably, against people, others who had been drugging. So his point is you can use data, not drugs, to win the Olympics. 
And what he said was, there's got to be a better way than to just take a pill and it'll solve all your problems. And in fact, that doesn't work. I mean, we all know that with the adherent, the rampant adherence difficulties in this country, just because you prescribe a pill doesn't mean someone's going to take it. The most expensive and least effective drug in the world is the one that the patient doesn't take. Another point about making sure that our patient engagements are personalized was pretty evident in in several of the sessions that I was in. Most health decisions are made between visits. You know, whether the drug works or not is going to depend on whether the patient takes it. And those decisions the patient's making between visits and are totally in the patient's hands. So we really need personalized patient engagement. Every single patient is different. The way that you would explain to me, you know, or encourage me or motivate me to take my medication is going to be very different than the way that you might motivate someone who was 20 years older than me or 20 years younger than me or had a different technology aptitude or any number of other different factors, education level, language. But the fact of the matter is that in order to effectively gauge, engage patients, there's a great quote, nothing about me without me. That's how we should, should think about patients. Someone also said that patients represent a massively underutilized resource in healthcare because of their ability to use their own data. Here we are talking about the doctor shortage and all of the provider crises going on in this country, and no one's thinking about how the patient, well, I suppose they are. That's a, a false statement to say that no one's thinking about how the patient can self-manage, but perhaps we're not thinking hard enough about how the patient can become an active diagnostician or do some of the things that normally in the past would have fallen in the provider's hands. Two companies that were there, which I thought were really interesting, were Muse, which is a headband that scans brainwaves and can reduce the symptoms of ADHD. Really, um, they had a clinical trial that showed that it worked just as well or better than, I'm not sure, Ritalin. And then there was another company called Scanadu where you could put this little thing up to your head and it would instantly check blood pressure and temperature and, and a couple of other things, pulse. So these are cases where patients are able to become part of the diagnosis team, which is a complete turnaround from the way that most providers think about patients and think about diagnoses. In fact, I was in um, PCP's office the other day who had a big sign on the bulletin board, a big printout that said, please don't Google your own symptoms. So it's not how we're thinking about it now. The other thing that can assist patients in between visits and affect health between visits is there was a presentation by the Visiting Nurse Service of New York and NY Langhorn. And what they talked about is how readmissions were prevented by home health visits. There was another company that had an app for dietary advice. And also um, there's a bunch of telehealth things that are going on, which, which really demonstrate personalized patient engagement between, between visits. So number three, technology demands an Uber doctor, a new kind of doctor. And those are in the words of Eric Topol. The, the, the job of a doctor is changing. That's immediately evident. I, I almost look at it like the job of a graphic designer has changed from 1980 till today. It's not even the same job. In 1980, the main skills a graphic designer needed were 
How good are they with rubylith tape and typesetting equipment and scissors and glue? Today, those skills are completely irrelevant. In a similar way, I'm going to say that the the skills of a doctor, which were highly co-vetted a few years ago, might be not the skills which are going to make a difference in the future. For example, as Zika Manuel said, the three most dangerous words in healthcare are, in my experience. Why? Because evidence-based medicine is the future. A gut feel is not a methodology. Uh, Zika Manuel said there needs to be a default standard of care that's, that is based on the best standard of care. Zika Manuel said that doctors need to be part of a team. They need to spend their time also being productive, not busy, which is a common mantra in if you listen to one productivity podcast, you're, you're going to hear this over and over again. So in every other industry, this is not, I would say, a newsflash that productivity requires you to do the things which are going to make a difference, not busy work, which can be delegated to somebody else and is commensurate with their abilities. You get so much more done if everyone's doing exactly the task which is best suited for them. That's the basis of Kaizen and all the lean production methodologies, which have been floating around in the rest of the industrialized world for several decades at this point. So, you know, for example, is the doctor the best person to give dietary advice? How many hours of, of dietary education do doctors have in medical school? Uh, none. Doctors shouldn't be giving dietary advice. That should be delegated to a dietitian. Other repeatable tasks could be automated by technology. For example, there's a company called Health Finch that is working on automating things like this, including medication refills. There's certain things that assistants could definitely do that need to be taken off a doctor's plate. Doctors really need to be spending their time doing things that only a doctor can do. And all of these low-level tasks need to be delegated to, to people who are might be more qualified to do these things or who are more plentiful in, in an organization. As a corollary to this, Eric Topol said, if hospitals don't have mobile access to all records, they're going to be left behind pretty quickly. And I feel like that statement supports this Uber doctor notion in the sense that if you can't be an Uber doctor unless you have access to information. So a hospital that has that does not have these Uber doctors is going to be in trouble. And then there's kind of some interesting conversations about how perhaps doctors won't be involved so much in the diagnosis of conditions. I mean, there's plenty of scans and labs and imaging that patients can actually do themselves or that machines or technology can diagnose. So what we might be looking at in the future is a doctor who's less involved in diagnosis and more involved in figuring out how to treat based on that diagnosis. Once again, that's a sea change. Number four. Sharing and collaborating requires trust and shared priorities. We got to trust that the person that we're sending private medical information is not going to abuse that trust. We need to trust in relying on others to complete vital tasks. Before, one single doctor it was a, an army of one, and I didn't have to rely on somebody else to complete a piece of that treatment. Or perhaps if I wasn't risk sharing or involved in the whole the entire patient treatment timeline. Maybe I didn't even care. You know, I just had to get my own little thing done. 
But now we all need to rely on each other and rely on our team to make sure that the job gets done. We also need to make sure that we share the, the priority of improving care. People cling to vested interests, we're going to have a problem. If hospitals cling to their medical records and refuse to release medical records or share them because they own them, or if pharma backdoors and, and gets inappropriate patients to take expensive meds, then we're not sharing priorities. And if we don't share priorities, then it makes it really difficult to trust each other. And if it's really difficult to trust each other, then it's very difficult to collaborate. One of the things that's going to be really important with number four is how do you remove the business interests that are barriers to, to sharing data, which is something that David Liss said. And this is going to be this is going to be an issue. We've got an industry which has not worked together in the past or really not worked together in anything but a semi or outright adversarial mode. How do we now come together and work together toward a common end and trust each other along the way? Coincidentally and very synchronistically, last week I interviewed Charlie Green from Trust Advisors. So if you're interested in this, you might want to listen to that episode because Charlie really takes a deep dive into what it takes to earn trust. So that was episode 21 of the Relentless Health Value podcast. Number five, my number five takeaway is that the decentralization of healthcare providers, that there is a decentralization of healthcare providers, and then a re-centralization around the patient. I thought this was a really interesting phrase, that it should be an internet of you. In other words, the patient is the only common entity between healthcare sites. And this internet of you is going to require customizable, interoperable platforms that connect all of a patient's internet-enabled devices. But at the same time, healthcare is, itself is becoming decentralized. In the past, the hospital has been the locus of care, but that's not going to be the case in the future. Consider that, once again, Eric Topol said that the, the hospital can't be the site of, of commodity care. A lot of things can happen in the home. It was talked about several times that the smartest and safest hospital room is the patient's bedroom. So we need to get patients out of the hospital and take care of them in their own homes. There's a lot of studies which show that patients being treated at their home have, have better outcomes and it's considerably less expensive. But that's decentralizing healthcare. Once again, if diagnoses and self-management are happening in the home, if there are community clinics which are outside the hospital, then the providers are becoming decentralized. But like I said, at the same time, the patient is emerging as the, the hub, if you will. So while providers are decentralizing, the resources are kind of regrouping and they should be regrouping around the patient. My five takeaways, which we just talked about, are number one, ACA's payment reform means the business model for healthcare needs to adapt. Number two, that technology enables personalized medicine at scale and personalized medicine is a must-have for successful population health. Number three, technology demands an Uber doctor. Number four, sharing and collaborating requires trust and shared priorities. And number five, the decentralization of healthcare providers will re-centralize around the patient. I would be interested in other people's points of views or other people's takeaways from the, the conference. There's a lot of information that was talked about. And depending on what your day job is, I'm sure you could slice and dice it any number of different ways. 
Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.